Genesis chapter 24. Let me direct your attention now, please, to verse number 62. And we'll be reading from there down through the end of the chapter. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. <clears throat> and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name, that thy counsels are forever settled in heaven, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished to good, all good works, that the holy men of God spake in the old time, not by the will of man, but as they were born along and led by the Holy Spirit of God. Thank you that we can approach your word tonight with utter confidence. Not only have you inspired it, but you have preserved it for us, and now we have it before us this evening. And beyond that, we come into your presence in our prayer to pray that the blessed Spirit of God himself will be our teacher. I pray, Father, you will just forgive me and cleanse me of my shortcomings, my sins, and my faults. I pray that you would grant to me a fresh infusion and unction from the Holy Spirit on high this evening. Help me to be practical, warm, and helpful, and bless those who may be handling other groups elsewhere in the building, and we'll give you the praise for it. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. Well, as Andrew mentioned, our subject tonight is Bible meditation. It is sort of a thought that is in the chapter in what has been called in this book, Habits of Grace, Bible Intake. And so Bible meditation, and Pastor Andrew asked me if I would do something on this subject for us this evening. I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, ever since I knew about it. And to be honest, it's a little difficult quite, to know how to approach this subject. You might approach it doctrinally, and if you do that, then you're essentially preaching a topical-type message, and you're treating a topic in Scripture, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, because it's very important that we know doctrines in the Bible, and that's how you do something like that. The other side of the coin, though, is it's awfully nice sometimes to be able to take a text and to be able to focus key thoughts out of that text. And so what I've done tonight is sort of to split the difference, actually, between the two. I don't know if you've ever heard Bible teachers speak before of what's sometimes called the law of first reference. Some people don't always agree with this, but essentially what the idea is is that when you come across a word or a teaching or a doctrine in Scripture for the first time, oftentimes that reference will contain a lot of the germ thoughts that you're then going to find develop throughout the Scripture. So to come to Genesis chapter 24 tonight, to me, is very compelling. As I looked over biblical texts on this subject, I just kept coming back to this story and back to this story and back to this story. And while we certainly can't find everything in this passage tonight that you would find in the Bible about this subject, I think we can take key thoughts. We can key off of those thoughts 
and then develop it from the Scripture and hopefully put together something that will enable us to walk away from here tonight with a little better understanding of what Bible meditation is all about. So I've titled tonight's message, Bible Meditation, Food for Thought. I want to talk, first of all, about the importance of meditation in the Bible. And actually, in our text, I'm keying off of the word Isaac. He's introduced to us in verse number 62. And then, of course, in what if we took a verse and considered it the text this evening, verse number 63, or yes, verse 63, it says, And Isaac, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Do you ever stop to think very much about Isaac in the Bible? Years and years ago, I did a series that I entitled Portraits of the Patriarchs. And, of course, it's not hard to think of how you would do a series on Abraham, lots of material in the book of Genesis, not difficult to move past, and think about Jacob, lots of material in the book of Genesis. And then you can go beyond this in the closing chapters of the book, and you can do something on Joseph. I've done all those things before. But I think you would be mistaken. I think we would all be mistaken, really, if we downplayed Isaac. It's easy to do for the simple reason that there's not as much material in the story records concerning Isaac as there is these other people. In fact, someone has made the observation, it's almost like bookends about Isaac, because Isaac was the son of a great father, and Isaac was the father of a great son. And so on the one hand, you have Abraham. On the other hand, you have Jacob. And it seems like most of the time in our preaching, Isaac kind of gets swallowed up and we don't really do very much with Isaac. I think it's a mistake. I think there's something very compelling. There's something alluring to me, something that just compels me to believe that Isaac was a a deeply spiritual man. In this particular chapter, we see him for the first time in connection with meditation. So that's an interesting thing. How many people in the Bible does it say that about? And he's the first one that it does say that about, that Isaac was someone who gave himself to meditation. I like something it says. These are just little notes to note. I like what it says down towards the end of our text when it says that Rebecca, she became his wife and he loved her. I like that. I think the Bible says husbands love your wives. And I like the fact that the Bible makes that statement about Isaac. I think you find something else. I mean, it's not really too long after this story when Rebecca comes back and she becomes the wife of Isaac that they encounter a problem. All marriages encounter problems. And this particular challenge was one that had beset Sarah before and would beset Rachel after. And that was the problem of barrenness. She couldn't conceive. She couldn't have a child. I think the thing that's so interesting about Isaac is what the Bible has to say about that. His response is a whole lot better than the response that Abraham had, at least in what's recorded. Because the Bible says that Isaac entreated the Lord for her. He took that to God. Abraham, unfortunately, listened to some bad advice from his wife, and you know what the problems that have resulted from that are. Another thing that's kind of interesting about Isaac is you find if you read the story carefully that as the Bible talks about Isaac, it has a kind of a unique way of referring to Isaac's God. It calls God the fear of Isaac. I find that interesting because that to me speaks of piety. 
and a proper fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So I think it's a mistake. Isaac is an important person in the Bible. It's a mistake for us to downplay him. And so what I'm doing by saying all of this by way of introduction tonight is you find key people in the Bible who are involved with this subject of meditation. And so you have Isaac here. And if we go further in the scripture, then you have a number of other people. And we just, this is kind of to to gloss over some of it, but consider Joshua. Joshua is certainly a well-known figure in the Bible. Joshua is certainly a man of God, was Moses' protege and became his successor. And we have that well-known verse in Genesis or Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. You're going to see this verse a number of times this evening. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, God says to him, on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Then, of course, there's the psalmist. We don't know for certain, but if David was the one who wrote Psalm 1, then David is the person under consideration here. But this Psalm 1 is a particularly important psalm. It's not by happenstance that this particular psalm is the header. This is the first psalm. It's kind of a a tone setter for for the whole Psalter, really. And you know what it says in the first verse about blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But look here, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's Joshua. Now I want you to think about an example that you wouldn't necessarily find the word meditation used in the Bible concerning. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. I guess maybe you would say, well, that goes without saying, because if we have other people who are examples of meditation in the Bible, how could it fail that Christ would be a meditator? And to be sure, I think that's so. Let's look at this passage. Do you know Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 is a really important passage? It tells us this scene about the temptation in the wilderness and how Jesus confronted the tempter in all of his power But Jesus confronted the tempter using the arsenal that's available to you and me because he used the resources of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. You look at the Luke account, it says Jesus went away from there uh, led by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit of God was upon him in this. How is this victory, how does it come about? Then was Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by, by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Boy, is that ever an understatement. I fast four hours and I'm hungry. But the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now watch this. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the first scripture citation. All right. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Well, the devil can quote scripture too. He will command his angels concerning you from Psalm 91. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus said to him, and this will be the second time he responds with scripture. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him 
to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you. Hey, there's a shortcut. It's much easier. If you will fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Here's something about what just happened. You might know, you might not. But this is important. Every one of those three scripture citations that Jesus uses there to combat the temptations of Satan come from the book of Deuteronomy. But they aren't just any verse. It's not just like rattling off some verse as if the word of God was some kind of an amulet or something like that. They are considered, they are targeted, they are the exact response that's necessary to address the temptation that's at hand. Now, how do you get all of that out of the book of Deuteronomy? That's a big book. What was he doing in the wilderness 40 days? Meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. That's how you get that kind of insight. That's how you get that kind of knowledge. And so it shows up here. Here's some interesting statistics about meditation since we're going to talk about the fact that not only do we have key people who are examples of it, but we also have it in key scriptures. But what kind of distribution range do you have on this in the Bible? All right, so lots of times we're using the ESV. Sometimes we're thinking in terms of the King James Version. You're using Bible study tools sometimes. You don't always have the ESV tools. They're out there. You just have to sort of work around on it a little bit. So I've, I've got an analysis here for you both ways. You'll find some form of the English word meditation in the ESV 23 times. Now, of that, Watch this now. Of 23, 15 occur in the Psalms. That's interesting. You find some form of the word meditation in the King James Version of the Bible 20 times. 15 of those occur in the Psalms. Now, I'm sorry, 19 ESV occur in the Psalms. 15 of the King James's 20 occur in the Psalms. Now, watch this. Eight of the ESV's 19 occasions in the Psalms are in Psalm 119. Seven of the King James 15 are in Psalm 119. So we have key examples of key people in Scripture who are involved with meditation. It's a practice of their lives. We have also key Scriptures. So we've seen these ones already in Joshua 1.8. Let's look at something in the New Testament. Now, you don't have this translated in the ESV, meditate here, you do in the King James. Paul says to Timothy, meditate on these things, give thyself wholly to them. Or as you see it here, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that you may see, so that all may see your progress. A little bit different flavor in the word there. We'll get to that a little bit more in just a few moments. Here's another passage I think is a great one to bring to bear on this subject, even though the word meditation is not used here, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
So this is something about the importance. This gives us a little foundational type material about the importance of meditation. Let's talk about the meaning. We're going to be looking at five things here tonight, so we have to keep this moving. But let's talk about meaning. And I want to say to you up front, not necessarily my burden under this point or the next. The, the information in these next this point and the next one sort of go together. Not my burden to try to give you a Tom Coleman homespun definition of meditation. What I would like to impart to you is a concept an idea of what the practice is. And I think we can do that this way. So, first of all, let's look in this verse where we have our text. In in Genesis 24 and verse 63, the word meditate, it means this, to muse. Well, right away I'm interested in that. You know what to muse is? Where you sort of talk to yourself. What I'm really interested in is nobody seems to want to do that anymore. You put the A on the front and you have what we're interested in. We want to be amused. We're not much on getting alone and just having time to think, time to pray, time to meditate. But godly people will cultivate this practice. So there it is in verse 63. It's not the common word in the Old Testament. The common word in the Old Testament is a word, Haggah, And it's similar in its meaning, to muse, to meditate, to think, to speak. Or it can be even used in a negative sense of to mutter. Ever done that? I have been caught muttering a few times and been asked to repeat what I said by my mother or someone else and wasn't eager to do it. So you can also have it used in a negative sense. But there's a common thread When you think about what these words mean, there's a common thread, and that is words are involved. Whose words? What words? Well, we already know from looking at the Scripture that they involve God's words, but now the Bible says that Isaac was meditating, talking to himself, musing, thinking internally. And so words are involved, and they're God's words, and they're our words as we think all of this over, and many times our words may be God's words, but words are involved in this practice. Now, you come to the New Testament, I mentioned a moment ago, this word is a little bit different. This 1 Timothy 15, meditate upon these things, as it says in the King James. Uh, You see it's not translated that way in the ESV. It's kind of a different word. Promelitao is the is it blends the, well, promelitao is the, is the word that's used in Luke. This one is just melitao, but it's, it, that verb comes out of a root that has to do with care. So someone who's careful about things, someone who gives diligence about things, this is what this word kind of blends these ideas, the idea of care and diligence. And so ESV chooses to render it this way, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Paul was confident that if Timothy did that, his profiting would appear to all, and I guarantee you that's true. In the book of Acts, when Peter and John interfaced with the religious leaders, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And I promise you, if you spend time in secret with Jesus alone, 
your profiting will appear to others. Let's talk about the object of meditation. What are we meditating on? See, this, as I tried to sort of bait you a little bit in the last thought, if Isaac went out into the field and was meditating, and meditating involves musing, talking, thinking to oneself, what are he talking to himself about? You ever talk to yourself? I've done that for years. I just haven't started answering myself yet. But I find it's useful sometimes to listen to what I'm trying to think. And do you ever try to pray when you're driving? I never could do that silently. I just can't keep my thoughts on what I'm trying to do, so I pray out loud. I'm sure people have gone by the car before and seen me in there talking. Now, I will tell you, that's not as bad as when I was a junior in college. No, a senior in college, and I had, I believe, some elective space, and I took evangelistic song leading. You didn't hear that, Peter? Just strike that right off the tape. Anyway, and we had, Mr. Conley made us do all that practice time, and I'd go down the road and be doing beat patterns. And that's not nearly as bad as when I was driving on I-99 between Huntington, Pennsylvania, and Altoona one day and saw a guy didn't have his hands on the wheel at all and was playing a flute. You do see some interesting things on the road. What was he talking to himself about? I just, I think we can't be dogmatic about this, but I have, I think, a good and decent suggestion for you. If you were Isaac under these circumstances, what would you be thinking about? What would you be talking to yourself about? I think the verse is suggestive. When you look down at it, it says, He looked up, and behold, camels were coming. Well, you know, in those days, and and Isaac knew exactly what was going on, right? Because, I mean, Eliezer, who was Abraham's steward, had taken off with a mission to find a wife for Isaac. That's pretty important. But you didn't just go down to Beersheba International Airport and pick up a ticket to Damascus. You had to to go on a a trip that would take you some weeks to do all of this. Then there was time for the servant to get there. There was time for him to to talk with the people there to finally see God's blessing and come back with uh, Rebecca. What do you think he's thinking about I think he's thinking about God's words because wouldn't your mind play tricks on you wouldn't you be a little bit maybe even like a servant and be thinking to yourself oh man I mean what happens if she won't come back what happens if the servant comes back empty handed but there's more to grasp onto than our fears and more to grasp onto than our worries there's God's word to hold on to This Genesis chapter 17, verse 21. I have it on the screen here for you so you don't have to turn back to this. But you know, God promised something to Abraham, and Isaac certainly knew about these promises. And this coming out of chapter 17, like this particular verse does, it's right after the debacle with Hagar and Ishmael. And God comes to him and says, you missed it on that, buddy. I will establish, it's not, it's not going to be Hagar, I, it's not going to be Ishmael. I'll bless him, he's your son, 
But that's not my plan. That's not what I'm going to accomplish. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this time next year. Now, if you were the holder of that promise, and you knew what the Abrahamic covenant was, that God was going to make of you a great nation, that your seed was going to be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in heaven, you can't count it. That's hard to accomplish without a wife. So there's something to lay hold of here. And I think he's out in that field to the best that I can understand this and and without attempting at all to be dogmatic, I think he's going over this in his mind, comforting his own heart, reassuring his own life, and lo and behold, right in that context, he looks up and there's camels coming. That must have been an electric moment. But, again, to develop this as we move on through Scripture, what do we say is the object of meditation? As I've been trying to demonstrate, even out of this early text in the Bible, it's God's words, but it's also God's works. And God's works really aren't too far from this. I'll get to that in just a couple of moments. But they're the clear objects that the Bible sets out. So we know Joshua 1.8. We've already looked at this, this book of the law. Then we have this verse in Psalm 1-2, the justly famous. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. But what about God's works? Because you start looking around, prowling around these verses, and it's pretty clear that God's works are a part of this. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Psalm 77-12. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands Psalm 143, verse 5. I never did have time. George Mulfinger taught astronomy, and I never did have time. But I was always interested in it. To me, to be able to go out on a night when there's no, and where there's not a lot of light pollution. Sometimes in a city area, it's, it's hard to accomplish this. Where we were in relatively rural Pennsylvania, you could accomplish it fairly easily. But I don't think I will ever forget until I draw my last breath, I took two trips to Colorado on elk hunts. And I can remember trying to walk back along with some others to camp after dark out there where there was like no one and no thing and no light. And looking up into those stars and into the night heavens and thinking to myself, you know, they made us memorize that when we took Hebrew. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It's awesome. It's absolutely awesome to meditate on God's works. A God who is capable of accomplishing Such magnificent works is what you can see, even in this sin-cursed world, even in a fallen world, to see the magnificence of what God has accomplished and what he has done. I mentioned about not necessarily trying to give you a definition, but trying to impart a concept and an understanding. Let me try to use an illustration. You've maybe heard this before. I'm sure it's not original with me. I'm sure plenty of other preachers and Bible students have done this. But I find one of the most useful ways to think about this is what cows do. 
know what cows do? They eat all day long. But they have a way they eat that's different than the way you and I eat. At least I hope so. They chew the cud. When you look at what they eat, it's little wonder that God set them up that way. I am not a cow expert. I love beef, though. It's a little different. Cows have four compartments to their stomachs. Wow. It's said that they spend nearly eight hours a day chewing the cud, which someone has estimated translates into 40,000 movements of the jaw per day. Wow, that's more than some people. When a cow takes its first bite, it chews it just enough to get that moist, moist, moistened. Swallows that, food goes into that first section of the stomach called the rumen where it mixes with some digestive liquids and is softened. I hope I don't gross you out. The softened food is called the cud, small balls of food. Now, don't even think about cats. The cud, small balls of food. Next, the rumen muscles contract, send the cud back up to the cow's mouth where it is rechewed and swallowed again. But they're really doing something when they're lying down out there. This time, it, it's going to a section of the stomach in order to squeeze out the moisture. And finally, when this enters the last part of the stomach, where it mixes with more digestive juices and makes its way to the intestine to be completely digested. And why do they do that? We're told in large part because the foods that ruminants, which cows are, animals eat are difficult to digest, and it takes extra effort to get all the nutrients from the food. Now, I saw something this week that I've seen a many a time. It's not exactly an uncommon sight when you're passing fields where they've had corn and other silage, and they'll bail that up. In Pennsylvania, they come along. I'm sure many of the other northern states, they do this too. They come along, and get, and now they have the, these humongous things. And they put them in this white plastic, and you have these huge things in the field. Well, this past week, I was driving down State Park Road, and, of course, you know, the weather's been inclement. We've had snow on the ground, such as that. And I saw a man that has, oh, I don't know, half a dozen, eight, ten, cows out in the field, he had a truck out there, and he had one of those huge round bales out there for those cows. Do you know, I drive by today and look at that, it's mostly gone. In fact, one guy on our way to church, I, I laughed, and my wife saw what I was laughing at, and she laughed. One guy was up there, he black, so maybe he's an Angus, I don't know. He had his head through the fence, barbed wire and all over the top, and was leaning down over outside the fence trying to get something from the grass, whatever he could get. I look at what they eat. I look at that silage. I look at that stuff that they bail up in that thing. No wonder they have to chew the cud. But I don't find that a whole lot different than the Bible, do you? I mean, the Bible has some things that are right on the surface and you can skim and get them. Low-hanging fruit. 
But you know what? There's a whole lot more in the Bible than just the ABCs. And the only way you're going to crack that nut, I love the story about Spurgeon. And on one occasion, he struggled and struggled, if you can imagine that, but all preachers do, I can tell you that. On one occasion, he struggled and struggled and struggled with a particular text. He, he, he knew there was a message in there. It, it's, I'm sure any preacher here will tell you about this experience tonight. It's like you know there's a message in there and you can't get it out. And he struggled and struggled with this particular text and he couldn't get the message and his wife finally told him and sometimes wives have great advice for us. She said, honey, why don't you go to bed and sleep on it? Well, he did. While he was asleep, he essentially articulated that sermon. She heard him and took it down, told him about it the next morning and gave it to him and he had his sermon. That's what this is, folks. Let's talk a little bit about the context or the circumstances of meditation. You know, the Bible doesn't particularly describe any place you have to be, any time of day. In fact, the Bible pretty much takes it all in when it says day and night. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night. You don't have to pick a particular time. But again... Thinking about this story with Isaac, there's just something here that's particularly interesting and compelling. You notice the circumstances. Look at that verse again, and it says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Well, if it's towards evening, then that means the labors of the day are done. If it's out in the field, there's a good likelihood that he's alone. And so you have this serenely peaceful circumstance in which Isaac's heart is full. He goes out into the field. This is I said to you a moment ago. God's works aren't too far away from this. This promise is God's word, Genesis 17:21. But God's works aren't too far away because he's in a context where he's surrounded by it. I used to do this all the time. I'd get in my car and I'd drive to the we had over 12 acres of property the church and I would get in my car and drive down from the upper level where the parking lot and the buildings were down into the field it was floodplain for those of you that know what that is there was a creek at the back of the property of course if you lived there you called it a crick But drive down to that creek at the back of the property and just park my SUV there and roll the window down. Listen to the creek, think, and pray. There's something about that. So the Bible doesn't prescribe any particular context, but there's something to learn from this. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I... I'm not a Luddite. You know what a Luddite is. That's somebody my age that is afraid of a cell phone. But I love my technology. When we moved from Illinois to Pennsylvania, we had a computer. Yeah, I know, they had them then. And my wife said, why don't you take that and put it in your office? 
I said, what would I ever do with a computer in my office? Wow. Of all the stupid things I have ever said, what would I ever do with a computer in my office? And it didn't take very long. The first project that we ever had there, we were raising money for another piece of property that adjoined us because we didn't want to have people right up on us. We wanted room to expand, and we wanted the protection. A wireless mic, the first wireless mic the church ever had, and a computer for the office. I had a skeptic. said, what in the world would you do with a computer? I said, well, one of the things I want a computer for is because I want to be able to send birthday cards and anniversary cards to people, and I want the computer to be able to keep track of all that stuff for me. I could see him roll his eyes like he never believed I would do that. I started that practice and never stopped. The whole time I was there. I had guys come up to me and say, thank you for sending that anniversary card. You saved my neck. <laughs> oh, my. Well, if you do all of this, where is it going to get you? Let's talk about this in our last thought. I've got five quick things to say to you here. We'll be done tonight. We'll find comfort. See, I said a moment ago Isaac's heart was full. Well, you think, why? Well, at the end of the chapter, it says that Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We read about that in verse 20, in verse 2 of chapter, the chapter before, that Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. It's a, it's a something when you lose your mother. It's a something when you lose any of your parents. I never will forget the day my brother called me and he said, Tom, Dad's dead. I don't know if it was then or it was around then, but I would read that text in Genesis, in Joshua chapter 1 and I couldn't get past it. Moses, my servant, is dead. I'd read that text. Moses, my servant, is dead. You have any idea of the utter finality of that and what that meant to Joshua? Holy smoke, I'm on my own. He said those words to me and it's just like, I went in and I lay on the sofa and I just dealt with it. You couldn't replace your father, could you? You can't replace your mother. She lived another nine years, I think, before she went home to be with the Lord. You just can't. And I think he was thinking about this, and I think this is why he was so overjoyed. He was so thrilled. God answered his prayer. He saw this woman. She saw him. She said to the servant, Who is that? That man walking around in the field. I mean, I think she was probably thinking you'd come up on all of these tents like Bedouins live in and you'd see the flocks and all these kinds of things and they're still out in the field or away from that. This is this guy walking around in the field. What, who is he? What's he doing? Ask my master. Uh-oh. And she put that veil down. I think he was so thrilled. You know, Isaac was 40. 
That's a while to wait. I waited a while, but the wait was worth it. I was 33, but Isaac lived to be 180. I don't think I'm going to make it. I will tell you a goal I have. Of course, it's all subject to God's will. I do want to make it to 83. Where'd you pick that number? I want to be married to my wife, 50 years. You'll come away from this with a lot of comfort. You meditate on God's word. You'll find refuge. This is what the psalmist is talking about here. Back up to this one before. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. You just find refuge there. You just find comfort there. You'll find understanding of God's Word. This verse, Joshua 1.8, we've just sort of glanced over it. Let's take a look at it in a little bit more detail. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that, look at this, with the understanding that you get by meditating on God's Word, you will be able to understand how to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Because your understanding of what God's will and what the Bible is asking of you will increase. And as you have that increased understanding of what it is that God wants you to do and what He's prescribing in His Word, look at what that yields. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. I'm in for that. Here's a third thing. You find victory in adversity. David in Psalm 1, verses 2 and 3, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates day and night. What's the result of that? He's like a tree planted by streams of water. See, when everybody else dries up, when adversity comes and no one else has anything down deep enough to draw on that really lasts, there is that well of water that springs up into everlasting life. The child of God has access to this. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We experience satisfaction and joy. This Psalm 63 is a favorite of mine. My soul will be satisfied, he says in verse 5. And the reason that I I love this is because he's in the wilderness. This may have been written when he was under the duress of flight from Absalom and all of this, he's away from Jerusalem. My soul shall be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You can't find anything sweeter. I mean, it, I always think this to myself, to to encourage myself as well as to encourage other people. You know, every day with the Bible is not a red-letter day. There's plenty of times you get with the Bible and you read the Bible and you think to yourself, I didn't get anything out of that. I found a way to challenge myself along that line. It's not foolproof, but it's worked for me more times than I care to tell you. And it's just me. I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'd get done reading, and I'd 
If I didn't have one of those red-letter days where something just jumped off the page and I just was so excited I didn't know what to do with myself. If I didn't have that, and that's not every day. I promise you it's not every day. Boy, it's sweet when it comes. But I would get done with my Bible reading and I would force myself in my prayer time to go back over it and say, what did I just read? And I'd think about it. And I'd think what I just read. And sooner or later, and usually sooner, God would communicate something to my heart that warned me and that was helpful as a tone setter in my day. And we grow in wisdom. You who are like this, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. It's possible to be wise in a way that people around you with all sorts of education aren't. All you have to do is turn the news on to figure that out. What can we say in summary about meditation? It requires some discipline, which is probably the reason we don't always do this. We're often driven to it in difficulties. It's not bad. But our motivation is a love for God and His Word. Oh, how love I thy law, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. And the blessings that it yields is also a motivation that we have. We just looked at five fruits of meditation. But I want to close with a simple thing. Something I've used over the years. I'm sure it's not original, but I always called it the replacement principle. You know what I mean by that is simply this. When you become a Christian, there's a lot of stuff you get rid of. But if you look in the Bible, you'll always find that that's counterbalanced with the positive. So we're to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're to put on. You put off, you put on. You've got to get this, this principle in the Bible. Why? Because God never designed the human mind to be a vacuum. And this is a huge distinction, and this is a another whole thing you could talk about and I don't have time except I want to toss it out. This is a huge distinction between what the Bible is talking about in terms of meditation and what secular or in particular Eastern meditation is all about. Eastern meditation teaches you to empty your mind. You're playing with fire. You try to create a vacuum up there and it doesn't work. Something's going to be in your head. You want it to be good and edifying and uplifting, or you want it to be bad and pull you down. And so in Christian med meditation, we don't spend all our time trying to figure out how to empty our minds. We spend our time trying to figure out how to fill our minds with God, His Word, and His works. This week, I had another matter that came to mind, and I thought about a friend in Pennsylvania who was a member of the church there. And there's some things that we share as common interests, so every once in a while we'll, and we write each other as well. 
And uh, I had gotten a letter from him several days before, and I was thinking about him a little bit. Something else came up, and I thought I would send him an email. This particular friend just happens to be the choral chair at the liberal arts college in our town. And I love music. He knows way more about music than I'll ever hope to know. But anyway, I happened to mention in the email to him, I said, so if you think about it, pray. I said, this week on Sunday night, I'm going to be preaching on meditation. Our assistant pastor is going to be away. He asked me to talk about meditation. If you think about it, if the Lord brings it to mind, would you pray about that? He said he would. He said, you know, in a responding email, he said, you know, it, meditation is an interesting subject in the Bible. Now, being the choral chair at this particular school, he's well-traveled. He will take the corral out, and many times they're not just venues in the United States, they're different venues in the world. He sent something back to me that I was thinking about, but I love the way he phrased it. Here's what he wrote. When we were in Vietnam, we spent quite a bit of time in Buddhist temples. Buddhists spend hours at a time emptying their minds. There is a sense of calm that occurs when one casts off anxiety-causing thoughts. Biblically, we cast all care upon They seem to be doing the casting, but not on him. That's it. See? No virtue in just emptying your mind. Danger there, in fact. Empty your mind of the wrong things and fill it with God and his works, and there is virtue and there is blessing.